listeners, it's been a while, but we're back on the air. I'm Leah Binkovitz, the senior editor at the Kinder Institute for Urban Research, where I report and write for and manage our blog, The Urban Edge. Thanks for listening. So it's been more than a decade in change since plans for the so-called North Houston Highway Improvement Project began. The roughly 24-mile, $7 billion project stretches from just south of downtown Houston all the way north along I-45 to Beltway 8. The project argues the Texas Department of Transportation is needed to manage congestion and enhance safety, as well as improve mobility and provide flexibility for expanded transit. And anyone who's driven along that stretch of 45 won't disagree that it needs work. Now, instead of coming off Irvington being a main boulevard, the traffic will actually sort of exit at Hardy and Elysian. So it'll really, which is interesting because there's a lot of development and new things happening in Hardy and Elysian. But, is it, but um, this actual intersection is a problem. There are accidents here constantly. Jorge has been here less than a week and I think has already seen one. Yeah, two. Uh, two. <laughs> That's Rebecca Reyna. She grew up on the North Side and is the executive director of the Greater North Side Management District, which includes Near North Side. She's part of a group of community organizations responding to the plans, pushing the state to consider community impacts as much as possible. She and her colleague, Jorge Bustamante, drove me around the neighborhood and project area on a recent rainy day. TxDOT, I think more so than I've ever seen them before, has been, have been willing to listen. Absolutely. Um, Quincy Allen, who, of course, head of TxDOT here locally, has just been so open to reaching out and to phone calls and to suggestions and, and things like that. Of course, they are the experts. So sometimes it's like, I know this is sort of what I want, but we need you tell me somehow some ways to get there. Um, In some ways, the project is different from Houston's other massive highway construction efforts. According to the documents, this project is not expected to induce growth like a new road would and like new highways have been used to do for decades in the Houston area. Much of the focus is on rerouting and untangling existing highways, but in other ways, it's pretty familiar. The draft environmental impact report completed in spring 2017 concluded that all of the alternatives would cause disproportionate high and adverse impacts to minority and low-income populations. The near north side is more than 75% Hispanic, and roughly half of its households earn less than 30000 a year. Other neighborhoods along the plan project are similarly positioned. The historically African-American Independence Heights, for example, is majority black and Hispanic, and more than half of its households earn less than $30,000 a year. Divided into three segments, the project represents the displacement of hundreds of homes. In segment one, which stretches north from roughly the 610 loop to Beltway 8, some 37 to 72 single-family households would be displaced, with an additional 26 to 160 multifamily residences. Churches and schools would also be affected. In segment two, which runs south to I-10 from the loop, another 26 to 63 single-family homes would be displaced, plus 18 to 38 multifamily residences, according to the estimates. When the project reaches downtown in segment three, hundreds more houses and multifamily residences would be displaced. When we had a community meeting where we actually went through the project in detail, people's eyes were just kind of open and were like, whoa, this is actually really big and happening. All of the alternatives would create specific challenges for the near north side, including what could amount to a barrier between the neighborhood and downtown. How will it connect to the ever-expanding Bayou Greenways projects and public transit? What exactly will be sacrificed in the increased right-of-way? Will the famed La Mafia recording studio be saved? There's a series of meetings that are taking place with TxDOT with these groups that are involved in dealing with the multimodal connectivity, visual effects and all that. 
So How the plans will affect transit, for example, is no small question. In its comments to TxDOT, the city of Houston stressed the need for both affordable housing and high-capacity transit. In near Northside, roughly 16% of residents don't have a car, and in Independence Heights, it's closer to a fifth of residents. Community groups are pushing to put questions about transit to the center. Yeah, TxDOT came up with a lot of good ideas and a lot of um, ideas that we think could be improved upon, and so the more community input we have, the more we can make the project better. One of the biggest concerns that I have is making the feeder roads safer because right now the feeder roads are sort of an extension of the freeway, right? You want to move cars really fast and, um, and pedestrians and bicyclists are sort of relegated to the sidewalk. And really, I feel like feeder roads should be city streets. Bustamante is originally from Mexico City, but his family moved to West Houston, where he graduated from high school before going away for college. After moving back, he said he was looking for a community where his neighbors were also his friends. And so he moved to the near north side, one of five pilot neighborhoods across the city selected for the mayor's Complete Communities Initiative. The area is not without its challenges. The business boom promised along the light rail has been slow coming, and after an 11-year-old was killed on his walk home from school, the community grieved. But it also came together, organizing a safe walk home program. You can't find a better, a better community. Um, I'm biased, I guess, since I'm originally <laughs> from there and I work there. But um, I think we're just united and friendly and they watch out for each other. And Today, the neighborhood that was originally home to Italians, Germans, and other European immigrants sits between two major highways, separated from the Heights to the west and Fifth Ward to the east. But that wasn't always the case. As we've researched in both in 59 and 45, these neighborhoods were very different um, before these freeways went in. They were, um, the Heights, the north side, were, was one community. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the freeway that separated. So we're really trying, as, as we're talking with Textile and the communities and other people, how do we use this project to maybe to reconnect our thread or weave some of these communities back together again? Our, both Reina and Bustamante are trying to make the best of the plan and find opportunities within it to promote increased connectivity, whether it's to neighboring communities or through bike trails and bridges to downtown. Some days, Reina says she feels optimistic, but other days she isn't so positive. The so-called deck park that's included in TxDOT sketches, but not funded or intended to be part of the project, is something they're both really hoping materializes. Close to downtown, the green space hovering above a depressed section of highway could serve to bring the heights and near Northside closer, but people would still have to somehow cross busy feeder roads to get there. Then there's the issue of downtown connections. Plans have been around for a while to connect North San Jacinto just south of I-10 and Fulton Street, a major community artery that runs all the way north through the near Northside neighborhood. But given the constraints around the rerouting of I-10, it now seems unlikely, meaning an area that's seen new apartments and investment could be effectively starved from critical connections. Reina also worries that plans to float I-10 well above the already elevated rail station in that area will add another visible barrier to downtown. One of my favorite things, and I'm, I'm originally from Northside, and I think one of the things that as I left to go to college and lived in
That will also mean that stretches of bike trail along the bayou will be under freeway as well. Sitting parked at the Castillo Community Center, Reina and Bustamante look over the trails to the downtown skyline beyond the bayou. It's because of the expansion. A lot of these trail, this trail now will be under uh, freeway. And how do you, and again, what working with Texas, how do we like that? How do we provide enough light and, mm -hmm. and where it doesn't feel like you're walking under a massive freeway? This used to be an old elementary school called Lee Elementary. And um, it was built in the 1920s. It actually was deserted. They uh, moved Lamar and Lee consolidated to the new school that we just passed on North Main Equipment called Kettleson. And the building was empty for many years. Um, then Commissioner Sylvia Garcia bought, purchased the building. When she left office and Commissioner Mormon came on, he went ahead and continued the program and actually helped um, renovate it and then brought in neighbor, um, neighborhood centers now known as Baker Ripley to operate the building. And so they have um, ballet flotical lessons and karate lessons and cooking lessons and jewelry making and this is where we do our Bengala the north side every year mm -hmm. and there's community meetings and this building is usually full and like I said if you're here on a nice day um, you'll see the moms with their baby strollers using the hike and bike trail and people on bikes and I'm here all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> here. and so we actually come here and walk sometimes after work um, and walk the trail and stuff so it's very active and used and and we want to make sure that that continues even after. This year, the plan, which has yet to be finalized, is expected to move forward with the final environmental impact report and the decision after years of planning. In fact, those years of planning actually represent an important departure, according to Kinder Institute Fellow and Director of Strategic Partnerships, Kyle Shelton. Out with a new book on Houston's transportation history and struggles, Shelton says it's taken decades to get to a point where the highway growth machine has slowed down long enough to even engage communities. I sat down to talk with Shelton about his new book, Power Moves, Transportation, Politics, and Development in Houston, published by the University of Texas Press. It covers decades worth of development and helps explain how the city and region came to look the way they do today. There are a variety of locations looked at throughout the book and one of the big things that I wanted to do was to highlight the fact that in most histories of transportation and particularly highways everybody focuses on right rightly focuses a lot of attention on the communities that are completely decimated which were often lower income and non-white communities and that happened in Houston and those case studies are in there in the fifth ward and the third ward and the east end um, but I also feel really strongly that that transportation history is something that touches really every community, not to the same extent, but in Houston one of the other examples is Memorial Bend, which is today, still today, and as was developed in the 1950s, a uh, middle class, almost entirely white in its development stage uh, community that was really impacted by the construction of the Beltway. It was not to the same extent as the Fifth Ward, it was only a matter of a handful of houses, not hundreds of houses. Um, but by selecting a variety of case studies, looking at how in the 1950s people were pushing for highways down to places like Clear Lake and Galveston, um, out making plans for the Beltway and developing around the Beltway even before the road was there, looking at Memorial Bend, the Fifth Ward, the Third Ward, and the East End, kind of getting that 
whole slew of examples, I think, brings to light the, the fact that it does really impact an entire city, and it's not isolated just to where the road goes or where it's most destructive. You mentioned early on that this is not unique to Houston. This happened in a lot of other cities. Are there aspects, though, that are kind of unique to Houston? I mean, we're so known for our highways and even now still um, fulfilling that sort of manifest destiny uh, vision of highway uh, expansion. Yeah, I think, so each each Sunbelt city, so I'd put really what are really the comparable ones would be Phoenix and Dallas, Los Angeles to a lesser extent because it is slightly older and has more of a transportation, a mass transit history than Houston does and mass transit present than Houston does. Houston's scale and our and the spread of the city is one of the things I, I think is most unique about the city as an entity. Um, not necessarily our, our urban region is not all that different from those other major cities and major metro areas, but the fact that the city of Houston is so expansive meant that while the city didn't definitively make the choices about highways, they were really intimately involved in a lot of those choices. And so that's something that's pretty unique, that the city government would still be a part of working with TxDOT or working with some of the other entities to say, yeah, sure, we'll figure out that right away because we see the benefit of building the Beltway. We think it'll help bring people downtown and keep people connected to the city. Sort of uh, related to that, this is such an essential story to tell if you want to understand how Houston became what it is today. But it's not one that has actually been really comprehensively told. Yeah. Um, why Why do you think that is, and, and why is now the right time to be considering this? Sure. So, uh, on the whole, Houston has a ridiculous dearth of history about it. Uh, there are still, despite the fact that in the last decade or so, maybe 10 or 15 books have come out from really great historians about different aspects of the city. Uh, it, we are lapped multiple times by the histories of Chicago and Los Angeles and New York. And for a city that is the fourth largest and a city that is one of the most diverse and the center of our energy industry and all of the thing, you know, the list of things that you can keep going on about Houston, it's incredible how few histories we have about the city. Because Houston has this reputation and reality of having such massive highways and such massive infrastructure, uh, it, to me, really makes sense as an angle into looking at the way the city was shaped and the decisions that were made around it. Um, and in terms of why it is good for now, I think that this is a time where Houston and a lot of other cities are actually thinking about, they may not be really consciously thinking about the consequences of historic decisions, but in the discussions that we're currently having about where we want our cities to go and what our transportation systems should look like, we are inherently responding to those past decisions. So even if we're not saying, even if our officials and our decision makers aren't saying, oh, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, or we don't want to have this highway project or, or this transit project, um, we are certainly responding to them. And so understanding the ways that we got to the decisions that we made and got to the systems that we have, I think is really essential to being able to have new conversations and say, hey, this is something that we haven't talked about before, and it's a huge departure from this earlier set of decisions that we made. And you mentioned the sort of weight of those historical decisions and understanding how those got made. Who do you focus on in the book in terms of actors, decision makers um, in those decisions, and then how has that changed? A little has changed. Um, 
on the on the grand scale, it's kind of the combination of elected officials at every level, local, state, and federal, uh, developers, land developers, both suburban and urban, uh, and residents. I think it's it's really essential to not simply say officials and developers did what they wanted because they wanted to make money and no one was going to stop them. Residents, citizens, Houstonians, and Americans wanted cars and, and many people were responding to the incentives that the federal government put in place in the 50s and the 60s. Most of those were white middle class Americans, but hundreds of millions of those white middle class Americans responded to the systems that were in place to encourage suburban development and encourage car use. Undeniably, a lot of the actors in the early chapters of the book in the 50s and the 60s are very prominent Houstonians who were almost exclusively involved in real estate development in one way or another um, and were also incredibly politically connected. So, for example, two of the people, I t one, of the, one of the main people I talk about in the early chapters is Roy Hoffines, who was a county judge and then mayor for a few terms. Um, and was also intimately involved in real estate development. He's the creator of the Astrodome and also owned a lot of land to the west of Houston that he and his partner uh, developed in concert with the planning of the Beltway. And so they would do things like swap land with TxDOT and say, hey, we'll give you this swath of our, we'll either sell you or donate to you this swath of our land, which may just be like a small weird corner of the property that they owned because it will allow you to do this right away in what for them then becomes a much more beneficial shape, basically, because it gives them more frontage or it opens more options for them to do subdivision development next to it. So that dynamic has persisted, I would say, up to today, really. Um, again, it's not just suburban as we look at these new projects as we're looking at the projects that are about highways in the city now, there's still that dynamic. There's still that question of sort of who gets who gets to influence where the road goes and whose businesses or homes or properties are affected and who's become more valuable, right? Um, I don't think it's quite as much of a, a direct one-to-one -one, like, hey, move this over a quarter of a mile because it'll really help me um, because it's not really possible to do that to quite the same extent either optically or just physically in 2018, you can't. It's going to be pretty apparent if you've moved over an entire road to benefit some small section. Um, so I don't, that has changed certainly. Um, but a lot of the decision making process is still very similar. One of the things that I track though and, and the importance of people being involved in those discussions as everyday residents, that has really drastically changed. And it, the, the two periods of that participation really are pre-1970 and post-1970, and it's with the passage of the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, um, that is uh, a huge shift there because NEPA institutes environmental impact statements and uh, public participation mechanisms that had more teeth than anything that preceded it. Um, oh, and sorry, it's not Environmental Protection, it's Environmental Policy Act. Um, and that really allowed citizens in a way that they didn't have before leverage in the planning process of these mega projects to say, hey, look, you have, you have evaluated your own project and found these consequences. This is unacceptable. Like, you either have to change it to eliminate those or this project can't go forward. So let's talk about that shift um, specifically around the I-45 project. Mm -hmm. 
and kind of seeing that project through the lens of infrastructural citizenship, how are you evaluating what you see going on? Yeah, that's really interesting. So in, in the book, the I-45, the North Highway Improvement Project is kind of the culmination of a lot of what I talk about um, and is, is really the pinnacle of this process that has been going on since the 1960s, where citizens have tried again and again to shape what is often what often appears to be decisions that are made in lieu of citizen participation, uh, especially historically. That began to shift again after the 1970s. Uh, there are still a lot of elements where officials and planners and engineers are saying, this is what we're doing, and, and citizens are sort of having to respond to that rather than getting to shape that, and I think that's still a thing that we can address in our planning process. Um, but the, the process for the North Highway Improvement Project, I mean, is diametrically different from what was happening in the 1960s, which was literally TxDOT showing up on people's doors and saying, oh, hey, by the way, have we told you that this highway is coming through and here's the route that it's going to take because we're putting these stakes into your front yard right now um, to one that has taken 14 years of planning and conversation before a single, nothing has started on that project. No, no element of that project has begun. Um, and they're still discussing it, and, and groups and people still have an, op an opportunity to talk about it. It may not always affect the project that you are focused on and that you're hoping to get a particular outcome for, but it kind of creates waves that keep rippling forward that then affect the decisions agencies make, the power that future neighborhoods have or the leverage that future neighborhoods have to change a, change a project. And that's one of the things that I think the conversation around North Highway has been really impactful for because it has meshed with all of these different trends in Houston to think about walkability and to think about connectivity between neighborhoods. So in the, was it eight years of research for this book, research and writing? It, the writing was longer. The research was probably oh, wow. a year and a half. Wow. Okay, so the, the research part, let's focus on that. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing that you learned? One of the things that you see when you look at primary documents in research, and I think you probably know this as a, as a journalist as well, it, it always surprises me how much of stuff is written down and really clear. Um, and when we talk about narratives around uh, just stick to transit and highways, like the idea that buses are for poor people or that the highways are a tool for development, right? Like, it's all there. Yeah, I'm, not, like, yeah. I'm not making those things up. People were talking about those. There are letters from Roy Hoffines to the city council saying, hey, I'd really love for you to support me doing this so that I can take advantage of this property, right? Um, those aren't things that are hidden or those aren't things that are um, conspiracy. It's, it's the way that it was talked about and it was the way that those things are set up. And those are really powerful, though, being able to, to set that conversation and think about the way that we, we want to move and, and come up with the justifications for one system over another um, are outcomes that are still being felt today. And transportation, mass transit is probably the best place to look at that. And again, this is not just Houston, but the narrative of public transportation is both something that shouldn't be subsidized, right? And getting deep, nerdy transportation history for a moment. Highways have been publicly subsidized for a century and have been seen as this is a public good, we must give as much tax money as possible to this, basically. Right? Trillions and trillions of dollars have been given to highways. Public transit 
didn't become public transit until after World War II, really. Almost all transit prior to World War II was private companies, and very few places had any traction for public subsidy for mass transportation until post-World War II. Um, and that's slightly different for places that had kind of legacy systems like New York, but they really didn't become, it wasn't until the 30s and 40s that they were really starting to talk about public subsidy. And that makes a huge difference. So Houston didn't decide to give public money to mass transit until 1978. I think that point about it not being a conspiracy, that there were intentions for certain neighborhoods to kind of bear the brunt of this, and especially certain populations mm -hmm. often, I think there is a tendency to marginalize when people do talk about my neighborhood is being targeted, mm -hmm. you know, we've been consistently um, not only underserved but sort of like actively yeah. undermined. Yeah. Um, there is a tendency to dismiss that as, you know, conspiratorial and mm -hmm. like sort of on the fringes, but yeah. it's all there in the record. Yeah, and one of the things that I particularly, again, for transportation infrastructure with that long life, it's really easy to both assume the construction of new versions of that and also forget the historic impacts of it and what it meant. So it was the 1960s when we built I-10 and 59 through the Fifth Ward, and so it's really hard for people who weren't there and who didn't experience it who look at the highway today and say, what do you mean? I mean, the highway's just there. Like, this, the highway has always been here, and your neighborhood has always dealt with it. That's not true. And, and it, like you said, it was built there on purpose. Um, and it's really, I think it's really hard for us today to look at those spaces that we just see as here's our received landscape and here's our received transportation system. And so we, we can make new decisions based on what we have there without really thinking about the motivations or the consequences of those earlier uh, iterations. And I don't, I don't think that's fair. Part of the challenge is that build, investing billions of dollars and building these major projects means that you're more likely to do the next one there again. And those same communities, those same geographies are going to experience some form of impact, right? It is drastically different to maintain or widen a road than it is to build a new one, obviously. Um, but those are still the same neighborhoods that are going to experience, in that, experience that widening and experience the new impacts of a highway. Um, so I think it's fair to say hey, we've, we've had this round of impact before, and it's important to kind of shine a light on that. All our options should be on the table, and we should talk about where we're trying to get and what are the most efficient and effective ways to get there, right? And so that's not, that's not going out of the way to target a new area because it hasn't had some project, but it is saying, okay, if we want to accommodate a million new people, where do we think they're going to be? And then based on that, what are the systems we need to put in place to move them, and then being really strategic about how we're going to do that. And that, I think, inevitably will result in a need for new conversations. I think a goal should be more equally distributed decision-making and equally distributed consequences. Um, and that's just a reality of building these structures. Like We all benefit from them, and we should all have to deal with the inconvenience of creating them to new conversations. <laughs> Thanks so much yeah. for talking with me. Thanks.